is the Puck Junk Podcast. Hi, I'm Sal Barry, and welcome to the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. Last month, the Fall 2020 Sport Card Expo was held virtually due to the COVID-19 pandemic. At the show, I moderated a Q&A panel with Blackhawks legend and Hockey Hall of Fame member Bobby Hull. Here is my discussion with Bobby Hull. Welcome to the Sport Card Expo Fall 2020 Virtual Edition Live Q&A with Bobby Hull. My name is Sal Barry. I have a podcast called the Puck Junk Hockey Podcast. I'm also a lifelong Blackhawk fan, and I am excited to interview Bobby Hull today. Bobby, good morning. How are you today, sir? I'm very well. I I just feel we're all being cheated, not being able to be uh, next to one another there at the Expo Center. I'm sorry that we have to do this long distance. We have some questions for you, the whole point of a Q&A. So our first question is, which goalie was hardest for you to score against in your career? Any goaltender that played behind those great Montreal teams, they were always tough to score on because we wouldn't get that many shots at them. Uh, There are lots of nights that you could have played goal with just a catcher's glove and a stick because you'd only get... 10 or 12 shots on them, and most of them would be from the blue line. We were chasing red shirts all night with those great uh, Montreal teams, uh, with the, the pocket rocket in Moore and Bellevue, Jeffreyon and Olmstead and Goyette and Marshall and Provo and Doug Harvey and Johnson and Talbot, and, and their goaltender was, uh, <laughs> well, they had some great goaltenders, uh, so uh, need we say more. Well, speaking of red shirts, we have another question. Someone is asking about when you guys played the Red Wings and you were hounded by Bugsy Watson. So uh, (laughs) he wants to know if you'd say a few words about your rivalry with Bugsy Watson and if you guys became friends after you stopped playing hockey. If you've got enough bleeps, I can talk about Bugsy Watson. He was one of the few people that I played against in the National Hockey League for 15 years with Chicago that I did not enjoy playing against. He was put out there for the sole purpose of throwing me off my game. Uh, I have no great thoughts about Bugsy Watson. Every game that we played against him, there was a contest to see who would come off with the less blood. And uh, generally it was his blood that was running all over the ice, either in Detroit or in Chicago. He was not a nice person to play against. And uh, he and John Ferguson and I uh, had a lot uh, of confrontations. I'm glad you brought up John Ferguson because I wanted to ask you about that famous Sports Illustrated photo where you just finished a fight with John Ferguson. You have blood running down your face. And yet you look like you're ready to go another round. You don't look like you're (laughs) done in that well, fight. You look like you could keep going. I want to know about that fight. Well, how it, how it started was Ferguson clipped me in the nose, in the bridge of my nose with a stick. and Not on purpose, I may say that, but because the blood started to run right away and it was John Ferguson, I took exception to it and 
I dropped the gloves and we went at it. And we had a pretty good go at it. And a lot of people thought the blood was from a punch that Ferguson had leveled. But it was because I had run into his stick and the the blood was out of a little a gash in the top of my nose. And I bled like a stuck hog. Uh, but we had a good go at it. And a lot of people enjoyed our fisticuffs. And still talking about Ferguson, um, I broke my jaw one Christmas. And we were playing in an, I think, an afternoon game, if I'm not mistaken, in Montreal. And I'd scored two goals, and we were leading Montreal one of the few times that we were up on him. And I went in the corner to pick up the puck. And next thing I know, I, I get a little ahead of myself. I took one of Stan Mikita's helmets, and they put a couple of bars in front of it to my broken jaw. And I never missed only about one game after I broke my jaw. I'd, uh, and this was in Montreal, and I went in the corner after a puck. Next thing I know, I feel John Ferguson wailing punches off the back of my hat, and we got into it again. And the Montreal fans, I think, nearly booed Ferguson uh, off the ice that day. They they did not appreciate uh, him uh, going after me, but especially going after me, throwing punches at me, uh, when I had a broken jaw. So we know you had a very hard slap shot. What was the fastest your slap shot was clocked at that you remember? From what I understand in the book of records, it was 118.3 miles an hour. <laughs> a quaint little story. They said likely they tried to compare my brother and I, Dennis, shots. And they said likely I could shoot the puck through a car wash without it getting wet. Dennis could shoot the puck every bit as harder, maybe even harder, but he just he just couldn't hit the car wash. I, I don't know when they took the record uh, shot. I have no idea, but it was in the record book at 118.3 miles an hour with an old wooden Northland stick. Speaking of sticks, can you tell us about the time you and Stan Makita created the curved hockey stick? It was more Makita that began the, the hook stick. He never liked Northland's product, and any chance he got, he would lay on the stick and break it. And I said, Stan, don't break those sticks. Uh, I said, I know a 100 little guys that would just love to have one of your sticks. If you don't like it, put it on my rack, and I'll see that some deserving youngster gets one of your Northland sticks. And he'd stay to age with those kids, and he'd lay on it and break it. Well, we were... In practice, Billy Ray was working with the rest of the guys, and Stan and I were at center ice, and he was condemning those Northland sticks, and he was leaning on his stick trying to break it. Well, he was only 165 pounds soaking wet, and the stick was so lithe and willowy that he couldn't break it. So he got disgusted with trying to break it and went over to our door going into our bench in, at the old Chicago Stadium, and he drilled the his stick in the door jam, and then reared on it and tried to make it that way. Well, what happened, the blade of his stick cracked down through the middle. The bottom part stayed in the door, and the top part flew out, and he's still uh, trying to break the stick. And when it came out of the door, it had a heck of a hook in the bottom of that blade, and it was now only uh, half the blade because it had split through the middle. So... We're 22 steps up 
from our dressing room up to the ice. So the deal was then you went down and you, we didn't even know enough to bring two sticks up for practice. Uh, you wrapped on the glass at the old Chicago stadium and the trainer would come up the steps, a few of them, see who it was, then go back down and get the sick for the, and while the trainer was up and back down to get a sick for Stan, uh, there were a bunch of pucks laying out in front of the net and here he was over there snapping those pucks into the net, snapping them in the net. And uh, I'm watching him and I'm thinking to myself, Makita's gone completely bonkers. I wonder what he's doing now. So when he came back to uh, center ice after he retrieved a new stick, I said, what on earth were you doing, Stan, snapping those pucks in the net while you were waiting for your stick? And he said, Bobby, I put a hell of a wow in the blade of my stick trying to break it. And can you ever shoot puck with the hook in the blade? Well, it was a combination of the hook and the blade and the uh, the thinness of it. You know, when you kids out there, when you'd play street hockey and you'd, you'd wear the stick down to about the same width as the puck, when you went out on the ice, you could really shoot the puck with it. That was the reasoning was the hook. All right. Yes. But the thinness of the blade, the same width as the puck. And could you ever snap it? He said, after practice, I'm going to call Northland and have them send me a half a dozen with the hook in the blade. And I said, well, while you're at it, haven't sent me a half a dozen, only hook them the other way because I shot left and Stan shot right. And that was the beginning of it all. And that was in about 1963. That's an awesome story. I want to fast forward to the 70s when you played for the Winnipeg Jets. A couple of questions we're getting about that. One is, what did you like and what did you dislike about being the head coach of the Jets? You were their player coach for a couple of years. Yes, I was. And uh, what was decided on when I left Chicago and went to Ben Hatchin's Winnipeg Jets, that I would be a player's coach until they decided on a coach that would handle us behind the, the bench. And uh, it was a great experience. And I coached by experience and by what I did out on the ice and all, all the rest of the guys followed suit. Uh, I played with Christian Bordelow and Normie Bowden, and we had a pretty good line for a couple of years until the Swedes came in 1974. And then when Anderson, Alfie and Lars Eric came and uh, Mike Ford, that was our fivesome. And we had a great fivesome. Uh, I think one of the most exciting group that ever played in a professional hockey league game was our combination of Swedes and Canadians. You skated on a line with Ulf Nilsson and Anders Hedberg. Hedberg yes. And that was called the hotline. The hotline now. Yeah. The hotline. What made that line so hot? Why did it work so well? It was it was an older Canadian and two younger Swedes, but you guys were like magic together. Why? I always played all over the ice. My dad at a very young age when I was ten or before, before that, and we're, when we're at the old open-air rink, and he said, Robert, you see that rink out there? Every square inch of that ice is yours, and you go to wherever there's open ice. And I, I remembered my dad telling me that, and uh, I used the entire ice. And even before the Swedes came, I'd be over on the right side and and my right wingers would look at me like Chico Mackey would look at me and say, well, what the hell are you doing over here? Get over on the other side of the ring. 
But I went all over the ice. And now all of a sudden, I'm playing with a couple of Swedish kids, and they went all over the ice. So when I would go to the right side, Anders, a right winger, would go over to the left side. Or if Alfie Nelson would come into my side, I'd go over into center. And uh, we just had a combination of knowing that the puck was going to go to the open ice and to the guy breaking away. And our, our main reason for playing was for Alfie and I to put Anders Hedberg in for an open net goal. And Anders used to go after he'd put it in the open net, he'd go behind the nets, slapping his stick on the ice and shaking his head saying, no, that's not my goal. That's your goal. Why didn't you guys score? And Alfie and I would just love uh, the times that we would put Anders in for an empty net goal. And uh, they were two great kids to play with. And Lars Eric, uh, the little captain, he was a great playmaker. And Mike Ford could really blitz the buck. And every time we'd go out on the ice, I'd say, now, Mike, move it quick. Because I didn't want Mike to handle the puck only in their end. I said, when we get in their end, then you can blitz it. And if I didn't go to Mike and say, Mike, move it quick, he'd come to me and say, he'd say, Bobby, I'm going to move it quick. And he never handled the puck until we got it in there, and then he could rip it. You mentioned the advice that your father gave to you, and some of the fans here are wondering, what advice did you give Brett Hull in helping him learn how to play hockey? What knowledge did you pass on to Brett? Much of the same medicine. Brett was a they say he was a late bloomer. He just went to college for a couple of years. And instead of playing junior hockey, he was at UMD, University of Minnesota in Duluth, under a guy by the name of Sertich. And he loved Sertich as a coach. And uh, he had two years at UMD uh, after he turned pro. And he turned pro with Calgary. I said, son, that's not the kind of team that you should be turning pro with. They'll want you to, to forecheck, backcheck, whack and bang and crash. And they don't realize that you're a natural scorer. I'm one of the few people that know that you're a natural scorer because he could shoot the puck from when he was a kid. He used to join in our shooting after practice, and there were only two of us that could shoot the puck with better motion than Brett Hull, and that was Anders Hedberg and I. And Brett would come in there, and our motto was, get it and shoot it, get it and shoot it. Also, when... He was finally traded to St. Louis. Their coach and manager said, Brett, we don't want you to do anything except score goals. And uh, that's exactly what he did. The greatest sniper that the National League has ever known or that pro hockey has ever known is Brett Hull. He could score in so many different ways, and he did. I used to tell him, I said, Brett, the further you are away from the puck, the more valuable you are, the more you'll get the puck. I said, don't follow the puck around. Go to an empty spade. And uh, Brett, uh, he used to say, what the hell is my dad saying? The further I am away from the puck, uh, the better chances I'm going to have of, of getting it and, and shooting it. And all of a sudden, it came to him when I was telling him, go to the empty spots. Go to those empty spots in, in the, the opposition and move there and then if you don't get it, move out and move back again in the same area. And uh, when he got playing with Adam Oates, Hull and Oates, do you remember that combination? 
I want to tell you, uh, Adam Oates was just out there to put the puck on Brett's tape that he'd fired in the net. He'd score in so many different ways, and he was just a natural goal scorer and was all his life. And uh, I'm, I'm just so proud of the way he played and uh, how many goals he scored, 740-some goals. Amazing for this kid that was a late starter. He was not a late bloomer. He was just in college for a couple of years, and he was 20-something when he uh, got in the National League, whereas I started when I was 18 and maybe wasn't really ready uh, for two or three years after that. Why did you switch your number from number 16? We know you as number nine, but you started as number 16. And why did you switch from 16 to nine? When I turned pro with the Chicago Blackhawks in 1957, Johnny Wilson in 56, 57 had retired. He, and he wore number 16 that year before I turned pro and 16 was available. And the trainer just pitched 16 at me and I wore 16 from 1957 58 season to the middle of the 61 62 season then all of a sudden the middle of the 61 62 season I was having a horrendous year I leased a home from an elderly couple and the bed that I was trying to get some rest in was like a, a saddle it was a little sway back bed and around Christmas time I told Brett's mother, uh, either I've got the big C or it's this rotten mattress and I'm going to the lumber yard and get a piece of three-quarter inch plyboard, a four by six, and put it under that mattress. Well, guys, believe it or not, the first morning I woke up after that board underneath that mattress, I was rested. I had to jump in my stride. And the first 35 games of that season, 61-62, I only had 13 goals. And at the same time as I got the piece of plyboard, my trainer, Gunzo, Walter Hominick, came to me with number seven. A lot of people don't remember number seven and handed that to me. And he said, we're going to change your luck. Well, I wore number seven for the rest of that 61-62 season. And in the, the last part of the season, the last 35 games, I scored 37 goals uh, to reach 50 for the first time. And uh, Gunzo thought it was the seven. I knew it was the ply board. I wore the, the seven from the middle of the 61 season, 62 season, to the 62, 63 season. And then I came to uh, the 63, 64 season. And went first exhibition game in Chicago, I went to put my jersey on, and here number nine was hanging in my locker. And I said, Walter, Gunzo, you've got the wrong jersey in my locker. And he came over to him, and he said, you're better than all those other nines, and you're going to wear number nine. So I didn't care what number I had. So that's how all the three numbers happened. 16 uh, from 57 to the middle of the 61-62 season, or seven from the middle of the 61-62 season and 62-63 season, and then nine for the rest of my career in Chicago, which was from 63 to 72. You and Eddie Shack were loaned to the Rangers 
to play for the Rangers against the Bruins on a European tour. What do you remember about that? It was after my second year, 57, 58, 58, 59, the spring of 59, someone in Europe had uh, scheduled a an exhibition contest for 23 games covering all of Europe. And uh, because people like Andy Bathgate and um, uh, a few other key players from the New York Rangers, uh, they had other promises and they couldn't make the trip. And since we ended up in third spot and Montreal beat us out in the first round, players from the Blackhawks were available. Uh, the people that the New York Rangers wanted from our team was Eddie Litzenberger, our captain, Pierre Pilat, our uh, trophy winner defenseman, Eric Nestorenko, and yours truly. Uh, so I was over there wearing number nine, Andy Bathgate's number, and the guys like Dean Prentice and uh, Popeen and uh, a few other guys couldn't uh, make the trip. And uh, I played on a line with Eddie Litzenberger and Eddie Shack. I was a centerman yet then. They hadn't realized that I was too dumb to be a centerman. And uh, I didn't get put on the left side until the following year in the playoffs. But I played with Eddie Shack, and he could skate. He was big and strong and could skate. But I had to tell him every shift, Eddie, stay wide, go wide, go around the outside. And before you go around behind the net, Look for me out in the slot, and I'll deposit the biscuit in the basket. And it worked out perfectly. In 22 games, I scored 50-some goals. And when I came back from Europe, I told my father, I said, Dad, I'm going to win the scoring championship this year. And he said, yeah, you and uh, how many uh, helpers? I said, my line mates, I help, I hope. And uh, that was 59-60, and that was the first year. Uh, that I won the scoring and I beat Bronco Horvath out by one assist in the final game, Chicago against Boston. So that's where I learned to play over there in Europe in those big rinks. Well, Bobby, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. All the best. Great being with you. For more hockey goodness, follow us on Twitter at PuckJunk.com.